thank you everyone for listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, coming to you one day after the end of the NBA season, one day after a Game 7 that probably goes down in history as one of the best Game 7s of the NBA Finals, probably in the history of the league. Uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, your NBA champions... So we're all dealing with that as Detroit sports fans right now, coming back from 3-1 in the NBA Finals, the first team to ever come back from a 3-1 deficit in the NBA Finals. So to talk about the NBA Finals and to recap that, and then also to preview the offseason, and with the draft on the horizon, it's easy to overlook how close we are to free agency, and for the Pistons, that's very important. So we've got a lot to cover, and to help me break down free agency and to also talk about the finals, and just the NBA season as a whole, is Ben Galker. How are you, Ben? Uh, still in mourning. No, I'm, I'm in <laughs> a little bit. Um, you know, what a historic collapse by the Warriors. I was really pulling for them, to be honest, and as much as anything, uh, rooting against LeBron James. Uh, I think Pistons fans sort of have a vested interest in cheering against him. And, of course, the Cavs, a uh, longtime rival, but then this year knocking us out in the first round in pretty convincing fashion. So I, I, I've got relatives in Ohio, so I'm happy for Cleveland fans who have been devoid of anything worth celebrating for most of humanity that as long as been, <laughs> they've been alive, right? I mean, most people who are alive now have never seen Cleveland win anything. So right. that's cool, but, um, you know. Not thrilled to see LeBron celebrating that. That's never fun as a Pistons fan. And it was really quite the emotional celebration. Yeah, the first time since 1964 that a Cleveland professional franchise uh, has won a championship. It was, I think it was a very human moment. It was something that even as a Detroit fan, and, and I haven't been a very big fan of LeBron James, I definitely respect him, but uh, what he did in this series and just seeing the emotion uh, clearly this title meant a lot to the city of Cleveland. Um, you're right. If you know anyone from that area, this was, this was insane. I, I did not see this coming, especially after game four, when I thought the series was over. I'm not sure if you felt the same way. Oh yeah. After game four, I thought it was over. Um, yeah. I thought j- just convincing, convincing basketball from Golden State. It looked like they had put the hiccups of the Thunder series behind them. But of course all the drama with Draymond Green and man, how, how much did Draymond Green let his team down by getting himself suspended? I don't, I don't want to pour on the MSU hate too much because I know we got all Sparty <laughs> listeners, but man, what a boneheaded play! And to me, that was like the most Draymond thing, Draymond Green thing ever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was at least a good Game Seven. It was, you know, as a fan of basketball, it was a joy to watch that game. Fantastically competitive, uh, and after a series of games that was pretty much blowout after blowout in either direction. A hard-fought, hard-fought game. Uh, and, yeah, I think, you know, we, I think we had a little chip Twitter exchange after Cleveland won Game 5. Um, Cleveland in 7 just felt like it was going to happen after that to me. Yeah. And uh, intuition is not worth trusting most of the time, but in this case it turned out to be right. Yeah, I think you went uh, hashtag hot takes on that one because that, <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> that was uh, everyone's big takeaway after Game 5. And seeing how Draymond Green played in Game 7, if he was able to bring that type of production in Game 5, which would have been a closeout game for Golden State, I wonder if if they would have approached that Game 5 differently, seeing as they were in front of a home crowd, if they would have had Draymond, who definitely brings a different energy for the team. I'm interested how that Game 5 would have went, but you're right, it was a very Draymond Green moment to get kicked out of the series for a game uh, because of another nut shot. Uh, It's... 
he's he's a player that there are certain parts of his game I, I would I would love to have him on the Pistons, and then I loathe seeing him play basketball at times. It's he's he's one of these very polarizing figures right now in the game. Yeah, I agree, and he reminds me a little bit of Rashid Wallace in that sense. I mean, Rashid was never a guy that I cheered for actively until he became a Piston, and yeah. once he became a Piston, just, I mean, I love him as much as I've loved any Piston ever. And, you know, I doubt I'd ever feel that way about Draymond because I'm a diehard U of M fan, yes. but I can see why he's endearing to the fans that he plays in front of and why the rest of the, the league's fans are are so frustrated by the things that he does, which frankly are dirty. I mean, he made some dirty plays, and I think the NBA made yeah. the right call. And then when he came back in Game 6, he was terrible. Uh, yeah. He vindicated himself a little bit in Game 7, but it was by by that point in the series just too little too late. And, you know, one thing that I do want to talk about with respect to this series is uh, I think Andrew Bogut getting hurt really hurt the Warriors' defense. I thought um, their small lineup – Small ball is one of the things I want to touch in a little more depth. But Andrew Bogut, he really anchors the defense, and he's one of those guys whose defensive impact isn't necessarily captured by uh, the number of steals he gets or the number of blocks he gets. Uh, but he's an inside presence, and uh, you look at kind of the way LeBron James was able to get inside, Kyrie Irving was able to, to beat people off dribble penetration, and then Cleveland was able to go small with Love at the five and LeBron at the four, and Golden State just had no answer for that and no way to punish that on the other side of the ball. They didn't have any big that they could put in that would really punish uh, the Cavs for going small. So I think kind of the understated moment was when Andrew Bogut got hurt, uh, mm-hmm. and I just think it gutted the Warriors' defense. Yeah, I think that's a great point. We had talked before the series about how important a player like Tristan Thompson might be uh, for the Cavaliers in trying to uh, mitigate some of the small ball problems that, you know, when Golden State goes to the lineup of death, maybe one of the ways you can combat it is kind of doing what Oklahoma City was able to do against Golden State. And you're right, being able to run LeBron and Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson at times kind of included in that uh, really did a great job against Golden State when they seemingly didn't really have a big man presence. So you're right, Andrew Bogut became, it, losing him became a much, I think, a, a much bigger part of the series than people would have expected going into it. Uh, but it was tough for Golden State to run those small ball lineups uh, with how effective and efficient Cleveland was offensively uh, when Golden State went small. Yeah, and so to kind of just, Payback that and talk about small ball. Yeah, just just generally. I mean, I think small ball is the trend, right? I mean, league wide, it's the trend. The Pistons, it kind of in their own way, are are small ball in the sense that they really play a four out, one in sort of approach to the game right now with one big on the floor, and that's not quite as small as we saw in this finals. But the thing that sticks out to me, just jumps out to me, having watched the Cavs you know, rattle off three straight wins in very convincing fashion, in large part due to the smallish lineup. I mean, a guy like Timothy Timothy Mozgov hardly got off the bench the entire finals, right? Mm -hmm. Tristan Thompson was the biggest guy they were playing. The reason they can do it so effectively, in my view, is not just because they go small and not just because they can create space, but because they can do that without sacrificing defense and rebounding. Yes. Because they have LeBron and Love – who LeBron is an all-world defender. I mean, when he plays defense and he's committed to defense, he's a tremendous defender, not just the chase down blocks, but even in the half-court setting. And then Love is a fantastic rebounder. So when they go small, 
they don't make the compromises that almost everyone else in the NBA has to make to go small. And I think that's what gets lost in the discussion about small ball. It's not just that Cleveland is able to space the floor and create space for Irving and LeBron off the dribble. I mean, it is that. It also creates looks for love in the post. It does do that. But on the other side of the ball, they're able to get all of those advantages on offense without making huge concessions on defense. And I think that's a very rare thing. And I don't think it was appreciated and discussed quite enough. Cleveland's defense was amazing. And they did that with essentially four perimeters on the play, uh, on the court, if you include LeBron as a perimeter player, for the majority of at least the crunch time minutes. So to me, that's something that jumps out. And I think, you know, if you're Stan Van Gundy, that has to be something you're looking at. Obviously, you can't just go get a player like LeBron James whenever you want to and fix that gap. Hmm. But it's got to be something you're thinking about if you're, you're looking at you know internal development with respect to Tobias Harris. He's got some of those strengths on the offensive side of the ball. And going small, in air quotes, with Tobias at the four, he's got to learn some of those ways to be better defensively, especially on the interior, and become a better rebounder if Tobias is the, the guy you want to roll with. Because in today's NBA, it's not just going small. It's going small without sacrificing all that important stuff on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what made Golden State so deadly when they were able to go small throughout the season was they still had great rebounders and they still were able to play fantastic defense. And that was something that just they struggled with against Cleveland. Uh, But you're right. If you can find a way to go small without sacrificing anything, that might be the perfect formula right now in today's NBA. But I remember uh, this past summer, so a year ago, when Stan Van Gundy was talking to Zach Lowe on his podcast about uh, basically how he was putting the roster together in Detroit. And Zach said, well, aren't you kind of creating a roster that would have been successful in the NBA four or five seasons ago? And the thing that Stan Van stood by was if you have plus defenders and rebounders, players that are capable of defending perimeter players but are good rebounders, you can start to make up for some of the problems you may have by having two bigger players out there uh, when you go against small lineups. And that, to me, was the difference for Cleveland. The second-chance opportunities and the rebounding advantage that they were able to get while still being able to keep pace with Golden State, I, it was a tightrope act, and they were able to do it for you know in all four of their wins in this series. It was pretty incredible to see, but it shows you you don't have to just follow one model to be successful in the NBA. So I think it's now put small ball uh, in a position where teams now have to kind of rethink it uh, when you're thinking about building a championship team right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the Cavs obviously have the luxury of the best player on the planet right now. And I will recant my uh, pre-finals prediction that Steph Curry would be the best player. LeBron clearly had and shoulders the best player on the planet. Uh, and the best player in that series in the finals. But, yeah, I mean, finding a, you can't go find him, but you can look for the traits that he's able to exhibit on both sides of the ball if you're going to try to pattern. And, frankly, the Pistons have to think about that because the Cavs aren't going anywhere. I mean, LeBron James still has a good – I mean, he, he looks as good as he's ever looked. Yeah. He's on the wrong side of 30. So I don't see why the Cavs don't have three or four years left uh, with this core, probably maybe J.R. Smith tails off a little bit but if the Pistons want to get anywhere in the east they're going to have to come to grips with that small lineup because there's no doubt that Cleveland is going to be uh, running that out there for years to come yeah that's very true it's interesting that a few weeks ago Kevin Love was as good as gone and now after a a pretty good game seven performance and 
and how they were able to play with him at the five during certain points of this series. I wonder now if Kevin Love is is actually staying in Cleveland. And you're right, if, if this is now the team to beat in the NBA for the next season or two, uh, for as long as LeBron James kind of stays close to this level. I think you're right that, you know, we should see, and we I think we already have seen some signs that he's slowing down a bit in his production, but he's still the best player in the world. I, I, I agree with you. I, I went in thinking Steph Curry could prove something and came out with another disappointing performance from Steph Curry in, in the NBA Finals. Yeah, Steph proved something, but he proved the wrong thing, unfortunately, <laughs> if you were cheering for him. You know, looking at the Cavs again, and I'm focusing on them thinking about the Pistons, the road goes through Cleveland in the Eastern Conference right now. Mm-hmm. Tristan Thompson, in my opinion, significantly outperformed Kevin Love. And I think, personally, the Tristan at the five and LeBron at the four is just scary. I mean, LeBron averaged double-digit rebounds. He led the team in rebounds per game in the finals, which is absolutely crazy, in addition to his 30 points and 9 assists. So, you know, where will Kevin Love be? I I think you're on to something in that Cleveland, I think, has been reluctant to um, move move on from any players that have contributed to any of the success they've had since they've had LeBron back. I think they probably overpaid uh, Shumpert, for example, uh, and maybe overpaid Tristan a little bit, but then again, maybe not. He's been fantastic. But mm-hmm. Kevin Love, he gave him, what, nine, like nine and seven in the finals? That's replaceable. So it will be interesting to see, you know, if they could bring back, you know, two rotation players and a couple high picks in the future, that might be worth it given how, how heavy a load LeBron and Kyrie are capable of carrying. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And you're right that there are some really scary lineups that Cleveland's able to put together when you have LeBron James at the four spot. And it was proven with putting Richard Jefferson next to LeBron James and you weren't losing anything because, you know, LeBron is still LeBron. And if you have a player that can play away from the basket at that three spot, can shoot a little bit and and defend at all, you're going to be really successful. So you're right, it kind of does make Kevin Love expendable, and he did not play well throughout the playoffs. And that's kind of why it was brought into question if he's going to remain on the team. Uh, I think if they would have lost the finals, I think it was no doubt that there were going to be changes. Kevin Love would have been one of those changes. Now it's, if they're retooling, if they think that they can put together a string of championships if they're building something, maybe Kevin Love can bring you a return of players that can upgrade around the idea of LeBron James at the four and Tristan Thompson or, you know, even like a, a Mozgov, even though we didn't really see him in the in the playoffs. Tristan Thompson and another prototypical center at the five. Uh, that makes things interesting, and it, it puts them in a position this offseason that I'm sure they didn't expect a few weeks ago. No, and I totally agree with you. It, it, I think during the first couple rounds of the playoffs, and even the first couple games of the finals, I was tweeting, you know, where will Kevin Love be? Could the Pistons put together a package for him? And then they go on this three-game tear and win. And, right. you know, they're obviously going to be reluctant to break up any pieces of the NBA championship, you know, anytime soon. But wouldn't surprise me at all if he's the topic of a lot of train, trade conversations, depending on how the first 20 or 30 games go for Cleveland next season. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's something that could happen this offseason, and I, I really think it depends on that chemistry. Uh, and I'm kind of reminded of something that Dan Lebetard kind of talked today about how, again, we were shown in the NBA that chemistry is overrated. 
he talked about the Lakers teams with Ron Artest and, you know, Kobe Bryant being the leader uh, of a team of when, you know, many of his teammates just couldn't really stomach having him as the leader of the team, that chemistry is overrated. So maybe you just keep Kevin Love because he's the best player and gives you the best chance to win. Uh, I think it's Cleveland now has to think about that chemistry and, and if it's worth rolling out a group of players that at times this season didn't seem to really care for each other. Yeah, and I think there's two points that I want to make here. The first is that I don't know if chemistry is a cause or an effect. Sometimes I tend to think that what we as fans observe as chemistry, you know, good passes, understanding where your teammates are going to be, you know, before they're there so you can make the correct pass or the correct screen or the correct cut. Sometimes I wonder if that's a byproduct of good players and good teams just being good yeah. or if chemistry is something that caught, it's something, you know, intangible that causes teams to do those things that you observe on the court. And I, I can't solve that in this podcast, but I, I agree in the sense that I'm a little bit skeptical of how valuable chemistry is. Obviously, I don't want guys fighting in the locker room, but maybe it gets overstated a little bit. And then the second thing I wanted to say was um, the Cavs have to not just think about what wins in the playoffs. And I think what, what worked against Golden State might not be what works for 82 games. LeBron James played almost 42 minutes a night, and he is not going to play 42 minutes a night over the course of an 82-game season. And presumably, you want it home court for as long as you can get it because there's still some tough teams in the East that gives the Cavs some problems. I mean, Detroit's up and coming. Toronto didn't play well this year, but I think it's still threatening. You have to have somebody other than Kyrie and LeBron, if you're the Cavs, to carry you through 82 games of the regular season. And maybe that's where there's still an increased role for Kevin Love. He's still only 27 years old. He still has a really good post game that I think was underutilized, especially under David Blatt. So, so maybe they keep him for that reason, because mm-hmm. it's an 82-game season. And LeBron, especially as he gets older, is not going to go give you 40 minutes a night. No, that's very true. It was really three games, right? They were able they were able to get that out of LeBron James for games five, six, and seven. And you saw that he was starting to, I hate to say break down, but that's the, the best term I can think of in the moment. Uh, break down at the end of game seven. There was uh, the moment with, you know, uh, going up with Draymond Green and coming down, holding his wrist. Uh, the jumper started to go a little flat in that fourth quarter. I know he did make one that was pretty meaningful in the last eight minutes of that game, but you're starting to see that you're right. This is not something you can sustain. So you need more players around him to take off some of that load, which is kind of the Spurs way of, of doing things. You know, you maybe you go small minutes to get ready for the playoffs so you can keep certain players fresh. That's You're right. This is something they have to think about. How do they attack next season in terms of the regular season? Uh, and I think they, they keep these things in mind because – we talked about the Tristan Thompson contract before the season even started and how questionable that was. Uh, and again, it came down to they knew they were going to need him at certain times throughout the season, including if they were to make a run in the playoffs, he was going to be valuable. So maybe that makes a player like Kevin Love valuable because you know in the regular season, you know, you were getting more production out of him than you were in, in the playoffs at least. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at Kyrie 23, Love 27, that's a pretty dangerous one-two punch if you're going to be resting LeBron James 10 or 15 games a year. And I think you have to start doing that as he gets older, but you still want to be competitive. So, you know, maybe you just open the pocketbooks, you pay the tax, you pay, you know, the the players that you think fit your system. And look, 
a lot of credit to Kevin Love. There's a lot of NBA players who would struggle to deal with the reduced role that he had to accept. It's very true. The last two years in Cleveland, and even this finals coming off the bench, you know, after after the concussion. So credit to him. He was all in in terms of the team concept, and for a player of his caliber, that's I think credit to Kevin Love and his you know his character as a teammate. Yeah, he has become a you hate to say role player. But he's clearly the third, maybe fourth most important player on that team. I I mean, we talked about how important Tristan Thompson was in the finals. So maybe if you're able to get two role players from Kevin Love, I think you're right. If you can go talk to Boston about maybe one of their guards and wings and uh, maybe a team like Portland or Phoenix and you can get some younger players, uh, that might make you kind of dynamic on the wings and in the backcourt and, again, take the pressure off LeBron James. Uh, if the front court can stay healthy. So it's a balancing act that now they have to, to think about if they consider themselves contenders for these next few seasons. Yeah, and I, I would, I'll be really interested to see the offers they field for him because I think, you know, LeBron at 31 years old, I think you have to think the window starts closing at 34. Yeah. So if they could get even a couple picks, you know, in 2018 and 2019, draft picks are cheap. They can plug holes in your rotation during the regular season, and that might be one of the ways that Cleveland, you know, has to has to think about, you know, what do we do with future picks to plug holes? Because they potentially have several players, well, at least two players who could potentially be leaving, uh, and actually one of them's on my free agent list that we can talk about a little later. So, so yeah, I think the Cavs have some interesting decisions to make around Kevin Long. You're, you're right about the, the draft picks. That was something I wanted to pick up on because just to get here, they had to sacrifice quite a few draft picks. You think about the, the two picks for Timo Mozgov uh, that went to Denver, and uh, I, I, the, I think they might have been second-round picks, but the picks involved in the J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert trades, that, that starts to add up as you know part of the future that's, that's dwindling out there. So if you can turn someone into draft picks... Uh, that may be expendable, so you can bring in some younger pieces for cheaper. Uh, yeah, that that has to be something they think about right now, uh, especially when they've had a few trades over the last few seasons. Sure, it got them here, but it also cost them uh, some valuable draft picks. Well, you mentioned free agency, and I think it's it's now that we're past the NBA Finals. The NBA draft is just a few days away, but it's free agency that's right around the corner at July first. Uh, the new NBA season opens, and of course, uh, that's when the free agent market opens. Um, I know this is something for Pistons fans that, you know, we've been told Tobias Harris is our free agent this summer, right? That 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 was our big move. But there's still a lot that can be done to this roster. And Ben, I know you've been thinking quite a bit about this. Um, so what positions in particular are you looking at when you think of free agency? And then maybe we can start to talk about some players uh, specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So in the wake of the Spencer Dinwiddie trade, which in the big picture doesn't do a whole lot, it does do one thing. It means that we need two point guards, not just one, because we've effectively traded our third point guard for someone who's not a point guard. So first and foremost, we need a reliable backup point guard, and we need a third point guard. Third point guards in the NBA are important. We've seen that. You lose one, they that due to a 10-game injury or something, it could derail your whole season. So mm-hmm. backup point guard and a third point guard – my top priority is the backup point guard, and then to a lesser extent, uh, the third point guard. Then I think the Pistons have to have to improve at the two and the three, and then I think there's potentially a role for some sort of a a stretch four off the bench, um, and or sort of a blue collar 
floor man off the bench. Uh, it could be Al- Anthony Tolliver. Maybe he comes back. But I think there's some better options. So in order of importance, I see backup point guard. Then I say the two and the three kind of as very similar positions. We need to have at least one quality upgrade there on the bench. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's room for a four man as well. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the order I, I consider to be in, ter- in terms of priority for this summer. I agree with you. I think it starts with that backup point guard spot. Uh, taking some of the pressure off Reggie Jackson. I would love to see a shooter in that spot as well. Uh, I think that would be important for the bench and and important to have uh, as a key piece behind Reggie Jackson. Uh, yeah, adding some some athleticism and some players on the wings. I agree with you. And again, shooting, which is kind of for every position, uh, the the one key uh, key thing I value is probably shooting. Uh, and then looking at the the four spot as well. Uh, Cameron Barstow, I will say the player we got in that trade for Spencer Dinwiddie, I think there's a chance for him to be the third center, which probably makes him the 12th or 13th man on the roster. Um, it's, it's going to be interesting. He's got a small contract. I, I think it's someone that, uh, you know, at least at least we uh, made a decision about Spencer Dinwiddie going into the draft. I, yeah, I agree. And, you know, Spencer, it just didn't work for him here. I, I hope he carves out a role as a backup point guard because coming out of college, his stats were fantastic. And his measurables were really good. It was just the injury, the question of whether or not he'd uh, recover from that. And, you know, I don't know, maybe he didn't, or or maybe he's a late bloomer, or maybe he's just not an NBA player. But I wish him all the best uh, because I was a big fan of that pick a couple years ago. Yeah, I agree. And he actually had some good moments in Detroit. I I remember there was a a stretch kind of middle of the season uh, when we saw him defend in back-to-back games, Derrick Rose and John Wall, and did a very yeah. nice job in extended yeah. minutes. So, yeah, I think there's a role for him in the NBA, but he uh, has to just provide a little bit more scoring. That was the thing that was kind of missing with Spencer. Uh, he ran the offense okay at times. Turnovers became a problem in the second season. But uh, you're right. He's someone that I'm definitely rooting for. And when you look at that as a second-round pick, I think it was a pretty good one uh, for what we were able to get out of him in a few seasons, especially when you consider uh, what was around Spencer Dinwiddie in that draft. Uh, so let's let's go on to free agency now. The backup point guard spot, let's start with that position of, of top priority. What type of player are you looking for, and then what players kind of fit that uh, in this free agent market? Sure. So, I mean, there's a couple things I'd be looking for in the backup point guard. The first one is um, ball handling and pick it. Ball handling, especially in the pick and roll. And by ball handling, I don't just mean dribbling, but I mean taking care of the basketball, getting the basketball into the right places in, in terms of the scheme of the offense. Uh, and then I would really like to have someone who could shoot, especially off of the pick and roll. Um, you know, Reggie has done a lot of really good things, and I think last year he improved, especially his ability to, to take that pull-up three off of the pick and roll. But defenses still go under the screen almost all of the time, and that's a preventative measure for the the Dre alley-oop, which teams were really able to control uh, last year versus two years ago. So I'd like to see somebody who does well in the pick and roll, but is a shooter a little more so than than Reggie is. And this is not a priority for me, but it would be a bonus. If you could get a guy who could play alongside of Reggie, uh, was a good enough shooter to play a little bit at the two, so that you could have ball handlers at the one and the two, because that's not something we've had for for several years. KCP, for all of his strengths, uh, one of his big weaknesses is he's just not that good off the dribble. So I, I wouldn't mind seeing seeing that. So I think there's a handful of guys that fit the bill. Um, the number one guy on my backup point guard list is actually Jared Bayless. Um, 
I don't I don't know how coveted he's going to be. Um, I think he's been a guy that I've always liked, and I think he might be in sort of a buy low position right now. Um, it remains to be seen, obviously, but Milwaukee really struggled last season. I don't think he fit very well there, and I think maybe that's driving his, his value down a little bit. So he might be able to be had uh, at a fair, fairly low price point, and uh, he does a lot of the things that I'm looking for. Um, last year, he didn't. He shot the ball pretty well from three, but he's been relatively inconsistent throughout his career. Um, but I think he might be a guy who can come in off the bench, give you a little bit of a change of a pace, uh, and be a, a quality three-point shooter, uh, and pick up maybe 20 to 24 minutes a game, because as we've talked about a lot, Reggie seems to have conditioning issues. Uh, so it would yep. be nice to have a re- reliable, quality uh, NBA player who come off the bench and, and spell Reggie. Yeah, I think that's the perfect player uh, for who the Pistons should be targeting. You're right. That's someone who could play uh, some minutes at the two. You could play him next to Reggie Jackson. He's a good shooter. He can definitely handle the the load of the offense, at least for stretches. Uh, and you're right. You might be able to to buy low. This could be a guy that's value could be close to just that that kind of mid level exception. Uh, I'm I'm I would be surprised if the market if he's more than you know around four or five million. Uh, yeah, I think he's someone to definitely look at because his shooting was not affected by his time in Milwaukee, which I thought was kind of interesting. He saw some of his best career numbers from behind the arc while in a situation that wasn't really great. Uh, I mean, that offense in Milwaukee was pretty broken these last, at least this last season. Yeah, and I think, you know, I didn't watch a ton of Milwaukee, but my sense is that he played off the ball a little bit more than he has in previous mm-hmm. seasons. And I'm not saying that caused his shooting to go up, but last year he shot almost 44% from deep, which was a career high. So uh, maybe playing off the ball kind of cultivated that skill, and and that could be that bonus that I was talking about. And uh, I should also say he's unrestricted free agent. I didn't spend much time looking at too many restricted free agents because that can just get crazy. He's an unrestricted free agent. He made about $3 million a year last year. So that mid-level exception number might be the sweet spot. It might be just enough to convince him to come out and play. And I think we really do have a significant role for him. I think he could be really the sixth man and play a good chunk of minutes after having played about 28 minutes a game in Milwaukee last year, maybe a little bit less than that, uh, but still uh, a quality role on uh, a returning playoff team. So maybe that's attractive. Yeah, exactly. On a playoff team, I think that's something that probably drew him initially to Milwaukee. Uh, and you're right, there were times that they used him off the ball playing with uh, Michael Carter-Williams, a player who, you know, can't really shoot, and that probably is what saw an increase in some of his, his shooting numbers. Uh, he was able to find his find his shot and work off the ball. Yeah, you're, it, it, you're right, it's going to be interesting if he can come in right around that number, because for the Pistons, that's important, because we don't have a lot of money to work with, especially after we sign Drummond to his impending max contract. Yeah, it'll be, you know, it's interesting to see how the Pistons will navigate this. I, I read an article today, the salary cap is projected to be at $94 million, I think is the number. Mm-hmm. The Pistons have a little over $70 million in committed salaries, ignoring Drummond's cap hold and ignoring the, the cap hold of our first round pick. So I think Drummond's cap hold is going to be around 5 to $6 million, if I remember correctly. I didn't look it up. So mm-hmm. we're talking anyways, we're talking about 15 to $17 million, most likely, uh, to get to the cap. So not enough to go sign you know, a max player, but potentially enough to get a couple of those mid-level exception level players uh, to bolster the rotation. 
Yeah, I think when I looked at it, you're right. It's right in that range, and part of it just depends on what the exact number uh, comes down uh, for the salary cap total. Uh, so I think it was about $16 million that I looked at when you think about the cap hold for Andre Drummond and then the first-round pick as well. Uh, you're looking at about $16 million, so you're right. That could bring in a few quality role players for you, uh, even with the cap going up and player salaries going up as well. Uh, and a player like Jared Bayless might be a great find for the Pistons because here's a veteran who is not looking to get overpaid or make big money on this contract uh, by taking advantage of this free agency period. I think he's someone who's looking for a chance in the NBA to prove he can still play big minutes like he did in Milwaukee. Uh, I think you're right that there are there are minutes to be had in our backcourt. And I'm thinking right now that backup point guard, you're probably looking at 15 to 25 minutes, depending on you know how, how long you can play at the two, if at all. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think, you know, Reggie played, you know, Reggie played, I forget how many minutes off the top of my head. I want to say around 30 or 32. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think so. So you're, yeah, your minutes are limited there because the Pistons are obviously committed to Reggie Jackson. But if you can, if you can step in and play the two guard and handle the ball, at the two position, I think you create more minutes for yourself. So to me, Bayless is kind of my ideal guy for that. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think he should definitely be toward the top of the list for the Pistons. What other players do you have uh, that backup point guard spot to keep an eye on? Yeah, so I won't ten, spend a ton of time talking about each one, but I think Jeremy, Jeremy Lin's an intriguing prospect. He's a little bit volatile, um, but I think kind of had a redemption season this year and proved he belongs in the NBA. He could be part of a, a winning rotation. Um Ty Lawson intrigues me a little bit, but hmm. only if you could get him cheap. Because I think there's obvious problems there uh, that we don't need to unpack too much. Um, another guy who's really interesting to me is Seth Curry. I'm not sure how you categorize categorize him as a player. Um, he's you know had kind of a rough start. He didn't. He played a handful of like maybe five games in his first couple of years, but then last year uh, in Sacramento, carved out a decent role for himself. Took a 111 threes, made 45% of them. Sounds like something the Pistons could potentially use as part of the rotation. So he'd be a guy I'd kind of keep in mind if you could take a flyer and get him on the cheap. Um, and then in terms of backup point guard, there's only really two other guys who interest me. Uh, one would be Jordan Farmar if you're looking for a guy who could maybe be your third point guard and fight, fight to be your second point guard. Uh, and then a player who I've always liked and has been a favorite of Detroit Bad Boys is Ramon Sessions. I don't know if he fits Van Gundy's system, but I've always liked him as a player, and I, I think he's been underappreciated for a long time. Um, so he would be somewhere on my list, maybe down the list a little ways, but he'd be on there as well. Yeah, I think that's a good list. The player that kind of intrigues me that I haven't thought about from that group was Seth Curry. And, yeah. and, and you're right. He had a, a really nice stretch of games at the end of April with Sacramento yeah. and actually decided he was going to uh, turn down his player option of a million dollars and kind of bet on himself this summer. He had a really nice stretch of games. I think there's a chance that he could be uh, a player capable of playing that backup point guard spot pretty well for someone. Well, and to me, it's it, if he's available for under $4 million in a two-year contract, you do it. I mean... A guy who can shoot 45% from three over the course of 44 games, that's not a fluke. Yes. Especially yeah, when his right. last game is Curry and he's coming from that pedigree. <laughs> so if he's, if he's available to take a flyer on, I think you do it. and Because if it pays off, it's going to pay off really, really big in terms of the, the cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, definitely. If he can come in and give, you know, in, in that 15 to 20 minutes, if he's hitting, you know, 
two, th- two or three threes a game at about at 40 to 45% clip, that could be really big for the offense, for the bench. Uh, that's the type of spark we need. So a player like that gets me kind of excited because uh, when you look at the rookie crop of, of point guards and you look at the free agent crop, there aren't a lot of names in kind of that middle of the pack, players you think they could step in and, and, and at least be serviceable backup point guards. You're really taking a risk. So I would rather take a risk on a guy like Seth Curry who still wants to prove himself in this league than a journeyman who's prob- whose best days are probably behind him. Yeah, the other guy I have on my list I didn't talk about, mostly because he's restricted, is Della Vadova. Shout out to Quags. Um, I, I think he's a fine player. I'm not a huge fan of his, but I think he's a he's a quality player. I, I just don't see Cleveland letting him go, because even though he didn't play a big role in the finals, he was, he was huge for them throughout the regular season, and I would be shocked if they don't match. He's restricted. I'd be shocked if they um, don't match a reasonable offer for him. That's true, and that... Was that the player with Cleveland that that you were uh, you were hinting about earlier? He was absolutely okay. Yeah, and that's that's a situation again that Cleveland has to decide how much they're willing to spend and how much on on that luxury tax ownership is willing to spend uh, this next season. Uh, they already spent quite a bit this year, so are they willing to match an offer for Dellavedova that might come in at ten to twelve million million like we're being told? Uh, that's that's going to be interesting. Uh, which if, if they don't, they're crazy. I yeah. mean, you've got to bring back the players who are key players in your championship run, even if they didn't play a lot in the finals, in my opinion. I mean, open the checkbook. It's well worth it. Everything they make from the end of the regular season to the end of the NBA finals is just free money for the owners anyways. You don't have to play your players anymore. So I, I think they've got to open the checkbook and keep them. And that's why I don't consider him a real serious option for the Pistons because I, I just expect the Cavs to match. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. I, I wanted to ask just about his value and it's, it's tough because I think this summer is going to be so strange in terms of how much teams spend on certain players. But is, is $10 million too much for the Pistons to spend on Delavadova? Yes, because they're so heavily invested in Jackson. Okay, yeah, I, that's fair. I, I just don't think from a team perspective it makes sense to give him $10 million. When you've got guys like Jeremy Lin and Jared Bayless coming off $3 million contracts, you know what I'm saying? To yeah. me, Delavadova is not any better than those players. Why pay him twice as much? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Let's move on and talk a little bit about the players at the two and three. So the, those players you have, what are you looking for in terms of traits from a, a player? And, uh, you know, what do you think the Pistons are looking for? And then what players fit that that are free agents this summer? Yeah, so number one priority for me uh, is going to be shooting. I think that's going to be – I really think it's important. If we're ever going to see – the full potential of the Jackson Drummond pick and roll and the three together in my mind. I didn't distinguish really heavily while I was putting this all together. Um, there's some guys who I think are maybe going to be a little bit overpriced. I'm still going to mention them. And then I think there's some value guys who might be able to plug some holes. So um, first guy on my list is Nicholas Batum. I am a huge fan of his. I think very likely he's going to be uh, over our price point. So I'm going to throw him out there as kind of my dream scenario. That's probably not going to happen because to me, he really embodies what you're looking for. He He's long. He's relatively athletic. He shoots the ball well. He plays good defense, and he he's a team player. He really buys in. And so uh, I'd love to have him in a Pistons uniform, but probably not going to happen. Um, looking beyond that, so kind of looking at the maybe 2 to $5 million price point, a um, couple guys that interest me. Um, I'm actually really interested in Lance Stevenson, and I might get crucified for that in the comments. 
I don't think he's going to become available, though, because he's making $9 million. He's got an early termination option, and he's only going to become a free agent if he terminates his contract. He'd probably be crazy to do that. <laughs> Another guy I really like is Kent Bazemore. Um, Atlanta's got a lot of really interesting decisions to make as well in terms of who do they keep and who do they let go. They've got a point guard situation where you've got uh, Jeff Teague and Schroeder kind of competing for who's going to you know, who's going to be the man at any given game. They've got to figure that situation out. Uh, their front court is aging a little bit, and then they've got some small forward decisions to make as well. Uh, so Kent Bazemore, if the if the Hawks don't make him a multimillionaire, I think he could be a really good fit for the Pistons as well. Um, looking at some of the veterans who probably won't command a ton of money, uh, I think Darrell Wright might actually be um, a second or third small forward who might be available. Um, he might latch onto a contender as, as players in that time of their career tend to do. Uh, but I, I'd be interested in him. Brandon Rush is intriguing to me. Uh, unrestricted free agent, can shoot the ball really well. Uh, getting older, hasn't really had a, a big role the last couple of years, but can, can still knock down shots. Chase Buttinger. So I don't know what's going to happen with him in terms of his market value. He's coming off a $5 million contract. He's unrestricted. Uh, he's interesting to me. Uh, but then if, if I strike out a Nicholas Batum, kind of the guy who I like compared to Jared Bayless in this situation is Jared Dudley. He's a player who really intrigues me. He's coming off of a $4 million deal as an unrestricted unrestricted free agent. He does a lot of the things that I would want a wing player to do in a Stan Van Gundy system. And of the players I just listed has the potential to be, I think the best value for the dollar uh, kind of at your two, three price point. So I'm not as excited about those options as I am at point guard. I think there's some really cool options for us to improve at point guard, the wing position, not quite as much depth in our price point as there might be at point guard. Yeah, I agree that there's uh, some some bigger names that are really exciting. The Harrison Barnes, Nicholas Batum type players. Well, maybe not Harrison Barnes now. Uh, yeah, I don't know about Harrison Barnes. <laughs> I tweeted that I felt like he was playing his way into a mid-level exception contract during the finals. Um, I mean, I'm not going to judge him by one by one series. I liked him all season, I but I thought he was going to get paid, you know, the big yeah. money that we wouldn't want to be paid. But who knows, maybe I need to rethink that after this finals disaster. Yeah, I agree with you. And I I didn't think Golden State would be the team to pay him, but I was positive someone was going to. And the reason I didn't think Golden State would was just, I couldn't imagine that their highest paid player, if they were winning back-to-back titles, was going to be Harrison Barnes. And I I just, I didn't know how they would play in a locker room with Klay Thompson and and Steph Curry. Uh, But I saw him getting paid. And I still think that a team like the Lakers, that's the one that sticks out to me. Part of it's Luke Walton as head coach. I can see the Lakers making a big splash for him still, uh, but I think you can put the max contract to rest. I don't know that he's he's worth that now. Uh, I, he's probably now a player that's making I don't know eight to ten million uh, on this next contract, which is still ten million is what makes sense to me. The only way I see it going higher than that is if somebody like the Lakers strike out everywhere else and then sure you know overpay for a guy like him. But to me, like. I just don't know if his production scales, right? I mean, he's yeah. in the perfect situation. He he excels in his limited role, right? He absolutely gets the most out of his talents where he is. And, and I just don't know if that scales. 
Yeah, he's a player that, it's kind of interesting, he's always been the third or fourth best player on his team, and it goes back to, like, AAU high school days. I, I was reading about Harrison Barnes recently, and I forgot that he was on a North Carolina team where Kendall Marshall went down during the NCAA tournament, and it became Harrison's team, and he kind of folded in the in the tournament. And you're right, he excels in this role as a complementary player. And you're right, if you're going to pay him $15 million dollars, you don't want a compliment. You don't want a role player. You want someone who can be one of the two or three best players on a on a t- playoff team. And I just don't think he he offers that right now. But you're right. He's definitely maxim- maximizing that role he's had in Golden State. Well, if you're the Pistons, like you don't want to go spend twelve billion for Harrison Barnes when you've got Jared Dudley on the market for seven million, right? Yes. It just doesn't make sense. It's not economical. It's not like Harrison Barnes puts you over the top and you're suddenly a contender for the East, right? I mean, he just doesn't seem like the right guy to spend that much money on if you're the Pistons. One of the guy I didn't mention um, is Wesley Johnson. So he's um, unrestricted if he exercises his option, which I, I think he probably will because he's only making about a million dollars right now. Um, you know, I don't know how much he's worth, but he, he might have some value if he's uh, economical, if he's cheap enough for the Pistons. Mm-hmm. And that's a player that, similar to Jared Dudley, has played at the 2, 3, and 4 the last yep. few seasons and can guard those three positions. And that, I think, is really valuable coming off the bench for the Pistons. Well, and the Pistons sort of have this positionality thing going on anyway, right? You've got Marcus Morris. Is he better at the three or is he better at the four? Well, it depends on the matchup, right? You've got Tobias Harris. Is he better at the three or at the four? Well, probably most of the time the four, but maybe once once in a while at the three. So a guy like Dudley or a guy like Wesley Johnson, that versatility could be useful given the Pistons' versatility in other positions. So, you know, those two guys, both quality players, I think, not, you know, standouts, but quality players who'd be on my radar if I were signing the contracts. Yeah, and I love Jared Dudley. That was the guy yeah. that when I, I wrote my little off-season plan and, and submitted that on uh, Detroit Bad Boys through you know the fan post that is now one of a million fan posts that was uh, off-season projects. Which, shout out to the Detroit Bad Boys community. That was so awesome. Amazing. I mean, yeah, I didn't I didn't have the time to contribute, but my gosh, like I got goosebumps when I opened the homepage and saw that. That was just. What what a fantastic tribute to to the community and to the community member we lost this year. Absolutely, yeah. It was. I, I think you're right. Like a fitting tribute, and at the same time, just shows how vibrant our community is right now, and how excited Pistons fans are right now going into this off season. And I know it's tough to get excited about a player like Jared Dudley, but I get really excited about the idea of someone like Jared Dudley on this team. This is a veteran that, you know, he's played for four teams in four years, so I don't think his value is going to be particularly high, but he he shoots the ball very well. He can guard the two, three, and four. He's a plus defender, and I feel like we need a chemist. We need that guy that can be, um, you know, on a, on a winning basketball team and can kind of bring that, you know, chemistry. I know we've talked a bit about chemistry in this podcast, but can help the chemistry of a young roster. I think a player like Jared Dudley can do that. So he might not be that exciting, but giving him 15, 20 minutes a game with what he's been able to do the last few years in his career, I think there's great value to Jared Dudley. Well, you know, he... Any individual player on my list, and it's longer than what we're talking about, but mm-hmm. any individual player, none of them are that exciting as individual players. But the thing is, they move the needle by a couple wins, right? And 
with, the Pistons won 43 games. If they can add three bench players that all add two wins to the team, that's a 49-win team. That's and right. And that's when you're at 49 wins, that's when you're one big trade away from really being scary, right? So I think, yeah, it's not exciting in terms of the individual talent, but it's exciting when you've won 49 games and you really do look like the up-and-coming team that has the potential to, to unseat the Cavs as the Eastern Conference champions. Right, and you don't have to sell off your future to do so. If you you can get it from Jared Dudley, and it doesn't affect your starting five in terms of just the core of the team, I think there's real value in that. And you're right, if if we end up looking back and we're a 49-win team, and it seems to be pretty minimal moves that got us there, that's that's a big credit to what uh, the coaching staff is building. Uh, and, and so far, you and I are definitely on the same wavelength in terms of how this team should be thinking about the offseason. Uh, with with those two pieces in mind, the backup point guard and now adding a wing player, there's probably not a whole lot of money left if we, if we took care of those two things first. So when you're talking about big men in that other forward spot, uh, what players, uh, if any, do kind of come to mind for you that might be available to us this summer? Yeah, absolutely. So it depends on the type of player that Van Gundy wants coming off the bench. Does he want another guy like Tobias in that it's a power forward that stretches the floor or more, you know, typical blue collar sort of power forward who gets dirty and rebounds and all that kind of stuff. I'm inclined to think the former given that you've got Baines coming off the bench to sort of be that blue collar guy. So my number one power forward is actually Terrence Jones uh, from Houston. He's a restricted free agent, um, which is never – you know, a good thing if you're a buyer on the free agent market, but Houston's got a whole lot to figure out. And in all of the, in, in, with all of the moving pieces there, maybe Terrence Jones isn't on the top of their list of things that they have to keep. So to me, Terrence Jones is super appealing. He's get, he doesn't necessarily have great three point range, but he's got that mid range jumper a la Antonio McDice. Um, and he, he's only coming off a two and a half million dollar contract. So, you know, if, if you could, if you could, fit in somehow Bayless, Dudley, and Terrence Jones with that $17 million or so that we have to play with, I think that would be a home run of an offseason. I think it would be a home run if you only get two of those three. Uh, but to me, Terrence fits the mold perfectly. He's, he can stretch the four a little bit, but he also can rebound, and that's one of the things we talked about earlier. You want to have guys who can space the floor but rebound on the other side of the ball. So he's kind of my number one uh, pick at the power forward slot. There's a couple other guys who – potentially be value players. Um, so John Luer kind of intrigues me, actually. Yeah. I don't think we're going to need a center, but he's, I think, going to be cheap. He might be a buy-low guy. Um, Jordan Hill intrigues me a little bit as well, although I think he might be on his way to getting paid more than, than we want to be paying. Um, the only other guy that's interesting to me is Timothy Mozgov. Um, oh. He's actually unrestricted. I don't know if he fits the Pistons, and he might want a bigger role and more money than we'd be willing to give. But I actually think he's a pretty good player, uh, and I would be surprised to see him in a Cleveland uh, uniform next year, given all the other contracts they're going to have to be signing. So that's kind of my short list for big guys. Terrence Jones, I think, would be the best fit. Other than that, not a whole lot to get excited about. Maybe your third power forward or your third center, which we might have already figured out through that Dinwiddie trade. That's true. And someone like Terrence Jones, it's this it's this offseason and, and free agency that I have no idea what a player like Terrence Jones 
what his next contract is going to look oh, like. exactly. Yeah. Because you've got a restricted free agent that clearly a team could overpay for because they're looking at a, a 23-year-old guy who can play the 4-5. You're right, he can stretch the floor a bit. He's starting to, you know, stretch out even to the point of hitting some corner threes and, and getting behind the, the arc a bit. So this is someone that could really intrigue some teams, and that could drive up his value. But at the same time, not a lot of production in the NBA. How much is Houston willing to match? It's it's kind of frustrating to, to think about because there's so many things that go into what is going to determine his value this offseason. But we might be in in the market. If this is someone who's worth seven eight million dollars, that's money we will have to spend. Um, you know, it probably puts us over the cap at that point by the time we sign Drummond and do everything else. Right. But getting someone like that whose production behind Tobias Harris could, you know, could really spark the bench and give us, you know, the seventh or eighth man that could be really meaningful for us, I think it's worth it if you can find someone like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, the, the odds of the free agency working out where we get all three of those guys who are kind of my one, two, and three picks is probably not going to happen. But even if you get three guys who can play those roles at an approximation of those three guys, I think you've really made a difference. Again, not any individual player who's going to be, you know, commanding a huge amount of fans or, you know, spectacular plays or anything, but all guys who move the needle in the right direction. And then if you can couple that with some small internal development, maybe Tobias Harris becomes a better defender. Mm -hmm. Maybe KCP uh, can become a reliable three-point shooter. I do think you're threatening 50 wins, and you're threatening 50 wins with basically only having Reggie Jackson, Tobias Harris, and Andre Drummond on big contracts. Everything else is extremely movable, extremely team-friendly. Um, so that's the type. That's sort of the template of the offseason that I hope the Pistons pursue. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And and saying that you know Tobias and Reggie Jackson, their contracts, they're not going to look quite as big in two years. No, absolutely. This offseason, right. you're right. There's still a pretty good chunk of that 92, 94 million. But in the next few seasons, when it gets above 100, and when, you know, in I think 2018, 19, when you're looking at 110 million, that, those, are pretty, those are pretty valued contracts when you're getting a starter uh, to the level of Reggie Jackson or Tobias Harris at, you know, between 10 and 15 million dollars. Those are pretty great deals. So it's it's in the short term, how do we build this this team? around that group and right. you're right it's going to take it's going to take hitting the value it's it's really going to take the um you know stan van gunny and jeff bauer i don't want to say get lucky i guess i want to say they they have to make smart decisions about the type of personnel they bring in because if you bring in a damari carroll type player and what he was able to give atlanta on what was a pretty bargain contract a few seasons ago that can turn you into a 50-win team and get you in the conversation contending with Cleveland. Oh, exactly. And I think, you know, guys like Bayless, guys like Dudley, guys like Terrence Jones, none of them are sure things, mm-hmm. but they're pretty sure things, right? And they're they're the kind of guys who can play a Damari Carroll-type role where you're the third or the fourth guy, but you're really good at what you do and what you do helps your team win games. And when it comes to the money issue, like at some point, and I think Gores is re- willing to spend money anyway. But at some point, you have to compare yourself to the teams who are winning in the finals, winning in the playoffs. And just as a refresher, and everyone knows this, but just as a refresher, this year Cleveland's Cleveland's payroll was almost 106 million. That's about 30 million more than the Pistons had <laughs> on the books this year. So when you find the right guys, when you're Bauer and when you're Van Gundy, and when 
when you know you've got the guys available to you that you want, you've got to be willing to open the pocketbooks. And if it's this summer through, you know, three guys who are five to seven million dollar candidates, uh, I, I have to believe that Gores is willing to do that uh, because of what he's done so far. Uh, so I, I think we've got an owner who's willing to to spend to implement the mission of the decision makers. Yeah, and that's a great situation to have an owner that's, you know, pretty much hands off. You know, he's he's in the media quite a bit, and you, you still don't see him really controlling and making a lot of personnel decisions. At least since he's got gotten Stan Van Gundy in place, he's kind of stepped away from the basketball operations uh, side of things, which is nice. So you've got someone who's willing to spend the money and otherwise allow the basketball people to make decisions. You're right; that's a really great place to be in, uh, and to do it right now when the cap is increasing and you have a young core that you're building around, I think it's a great position to be in. Uh, and that's not including the rookies that we'll be adding uh, through the draft on Thursday. Yeah. And gosh, Thursday, how is that possible? That it's the draft already. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem right. It came up way yeah, too fast. And I look forward to what our draft gurus are going to be um, talking about on the next podcast. I won't be interested in cause I don't, I don't know anything about the draft. Leave you it do. to the guys who do. And I'm really anxious to look forward to it. But one thing about Tom Gore is I wanted to say is I think he's involved in all the right ways. He shows up to games, not all of them, but he shows up to games. And the thing that I love about him is how, committed he is to Michigan communities right now. For example, what he's doing in Flint with the foundation that he set up to address the water crisis. I mean, it, obviously he's got some personal connections to that city and that town, but absolutely, uh, it, it's been, as someone who's involved in, in community level work as a profession, I have a huge amount of respect for the way that he stepped in and, and become involved. You know, he doesn't live here full time. He's been involved in and committed to the communities, um, not only where his team is, but in other places as well that really need some help. So uh, I think being involved in all the right ways is what I see from Tom Gores. Yeah, I completely agree. You're right. It's nice that he's given back to the state of Michigan. Uh, you know, he's bringing an MLS team to Detroit. All the work he's done in kind of a th- philanthropic way with the city of Flint and, and bringing some awareness to the Flint water crisis as well, I think is fantastic. You're right. Uh I have really been impressed with him as an owner. I, I had my doubts at first with the coaching changes in the middle of the season, but once he brought in Stan Van Gundy and decided he wanted to do what's best for this team, uh, and otherwise, you're right, he's been an active owner in the right ways. It's It's been really nice. So that does it for this episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Uh, ben and I just want to thank everyone for continuing to support our podcast. We get such a great response from this. And I I know that we've both had so much fun doing it and looking forward to a new season. I'm looking forward to the NBA season because I love that I get to talk to NBA fans and Pistons fans each week about the team that we love. It's meant so much to be a part of the Detroit Bad Boys family. And thank you, DBB, for being a community that's really supported this podcast. And I actually have another episode coming up a little later this week. Right before the NBA draft, we're going to preview it for you talking to some of the guys on Detroit Bad Boys who are real draft gurus, getting some insights before the draft about pick number 18 that belongs to the Pistons, but also about the players around that pick, uh, players that you should keep in mind as you go into draft night that's, again, 72 hours away that just doesn't even seem right. Some really exciting things coming up. The offseason, it's it's here. <laughs> the season's over and the offseason is already here, so we've got a lot to continue to talk about. Thanks so much, and we'll be talking to you again soon.